Well, this morning we're going to dive in and finish this sermon series called Trust in Action. And there is no greater place that you need to put your trust and then act on that trust than in the Scriptures, than in the Bible. And though there is no greater place that you need to put your faith and hope and trust, there perhaps is no more difficult or challenging place to put your faith and trust. And I know that majority of those of you that are following Jesus, you have this, I'm going to say that this is like, this is not bad. This sounds bad, but it's not bad. Okay? You have an assumed trust in the Bible. Some of you, as followers of Jesus, you're going on the basic assumption that the Bible is actually true, that it's actually historic, that it is actually the authoritative Word of God. Some of you are going on that assumption. Some of you have never really tested that. And some of you maybe feel like you're not supposed to. Like you're just supposed to swallow the whole thing and say, well, you know, for years and years and years, highly intelligent people have been believing in the Bible and there's just this assumed kind of faith that you've placed. Now, if you're living in that kind of assumed place of faith in the Bible and it's going well for you and you're moving quite well through your Christian journey, um, then then fine, I'm not here to wreck your day. (laughs) But if you're a person that has found that that assumed kind of faith and trust in the Bible gets a little weak when life gets a little rocky and you're tempted to question the authority of Scripture, you're tempted to question the legitimacy or the trustworthiness of the Bible, which you have perhaps in your hand today or on your phones, <laughs> wherever you have the Bible, where you have the Word of God today. Sometimes life gets in a situation where you start to question that assumed faith. You, well, I always thought the Bible was true. You know, I always thought the Bible was accurate. But then I'm experiencing some things and seeing some things that maybe cause you to question whether or not you can really trust the Bible. Now, what happens a lot of times in our lives is that we become Christian in such a way that um, is, is good, but then if it's not grown up, it becomes kind of detrimental. All right. So mo- most of us, become Christians one of two ways. Either you were raised in the faith, it's just how you were raised. Your mom and dad or grandma and grandpa took you to church and you went to classes such as we're doing here with these little kids and that's what you did and you were told all the Bible stories and you were told all the accounts and you were told all of these things, right? And and they came along with candy and they came along with crafts and they came along with fun stuff and it was a party and it built this kind of faith in you that the Bible is something that you can trust. And, and so you got saved that way and you've been walking with the Lord ever since. And maybe there was some strain, but you're coming back. and you're, you're growing. So there's that. And then there's also the other way where people that are usually, they're raised outside of the church. There's no real Bible foundation. There's nothing really going on. Um, and then typically that person, something goes haywire in their world. Um, they struggle with something. There's a, there's a death of a loved one. There's a loss of a job. There's a health crisis. There's, there's some sort of something going on, right? And you... 
Christian and you are ministered to by Jesus and the Holy Spirit moves in your life in such a way to help you through whatever that problem might be, whatever that crisis is. And so you think, well, I can trust Jesus because my life was a mess. I met a Christian. Jesus helped me. I'm a Christian. Amen. I'm in. The Bible must be true. All that these pastors and preachers say must be somewhat true. And, and okay, I'm in. I, I'm, I'm a Christian. Let's do this. Either way, you become a Christian. Either you're raised in the faith and you have this assumed kind of trust in the Bible, or you've come to Christ later through some sort of crisis or some sort of thing. Um, you know, life becomes life, and sooner or later, that assumed faith is going to be challenged. Or something that Jesus helped you with and you became a follower of Him, maybe you get another challenge and maybe Jesus doesn't answer your prayer the way you think He should answer it the next time. And you're like, well, it worked this time, but it's not working now, so maybe the whole thing is just garbage. And so there's this kind of struggle that we have in trusting the Bible. And what I'm going to try to do this morning is I'm going to try to do something that's a little bit of a challenge for, for a, a, a pastor, a, a speaker. I'm going to try to take a little bit of academic kind of work and hopefully shape it into some sort of a sermon thing because you know the difference between the academy and the sanctuary, right? Okay, the academy, the university level, theological studies, institutions, theology and Bible as a topic, right? And you also know that there's devotional stuff, sermon stuff, and what a professor gives at a university in a doctoral theological course is different than what a pastor does on Sunday morning. Those things are different, okay? But there's some things that you have to kind of be confronted with in the Scriptures that sound a little bit like what we would do in a theological class and the less than what we do on a Sunday morning. So I'm going to ask that you bear with me because as I talk to you this morning, I'm somewhere between a lecture and a sermon, and you're like, is there a difference? And if you don't know the difference, praise God. You might just think this is extra boring today. And if you think it's extra boring, that's the, that's the, the, the lecture part. Okay, so, um, so yes. So we're going to try to pull that off, and we'll try to get out of here at a reasonable time because this is a massive, massive issue. But for summary's sake, the main point of what I want to talk to you about this morning is this. Trusting the Bible as authoritative using it for helpful advice, or dismissing it as harmful, ignorant superstition. Those seem to me, as I look across the landscape of ideas, considering this, this thing, this Bible, which mine happens to be held together with glue and leather and some string, that th this thing has been around for so long, your average thinking person about the world that's just looking at the world and trying to figure out how we should think and operate and live and make decisions and do all that kind of stuff, a thinking person would at least consider that this document that has been around for nearly 2,000 years, a third of it, the earlier two-third of it, has been around for about 3,500 years. And so that's a long time. And it's shaped a lot of cultures. It's shaped a lot of um, 
governments. It's shaped a lot of, a lot of things. It's, it's been very influential as far as humanity is concerned. So when you take this document and say, well, this document has really affected humanity for centuries, and it's affected the entire globe. So at least we should ask ourselves a question, what is it, <laughs> right? And these seem to be some options. And you might come up with other options, but this is kind of a summary of the options that we can trust, we can trust the Bible as authoritative, use it for helpful advice, or we can dismiss it as harmful, ignorant superstition. Those are seems to be your options. So where do you stand today? Where do you stand? It's a question that I, you, of course, we're in a, it's a monologue this morning. <laughs> but maybe you can kind of think through and say, well, no, I, it, it is God's authoritative word, and I, it, when I read it and I don't like it, I say, well, it is God's authoritative word. I kind of have to submit to it. Or, or do you use it kind of like as helpful advice? That it's, I don't, I don't have to do it. I don't have to follow it. It's just kind of a place where I can go get some helpful advice. It'll, it'll tell me some things about marriage. It'll tell me some things about, you know, how I should operate in the world and tell me some things about money and all those kinds of things. It's just kind of helpful. It's not really authoritative. I can take it or leave it. I could ask somebody a question. They can give me an idea. The Bible can give me an idea, and I could just kind of use it that way. Or I can look at it and go, well, it's actually harmful superstition. I mean, it really hurts people. It makes people feel like they're wrong. It makes people feel like they shouldn't be who they are. It makes people feel restricted. It makes people feel less than. It makes people feel excluded and shamed. So it's harmful. When we feel like we are a certain way, we read the Bible and it says that that way is wrong. Whoa, that hurts me. That's harmful. Superstition needs to be set. That needs to be rejected. You see, so somewhere in there are some three are three options. Let's work a little bit in reverse order. Let's address this last one: dismissing the Bible as harmful, ignorant superstition. Just very basically and very quickly, if you were to do kind of this little search of what humanist would call would refer to as the Bible, and you know, a humanist is a person that doesn't believe in any sort of religion whatsoever. Okay, they're atheistic. Means there's no God. There's no spiritual kind of thing in life because it's very popular today to say, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, right? Very, very popular. But a humanist says, we are it, okay? They would believe in Darwinian evolution. They would believe that time plus matter plus chance has landed us where we are, okay? Time plus matter plus chance, no guiding spirits, no overarching kind of spiritual world. There's just us we are physical beings. Everything that you and I do are manifestations of the biology within our brain. That's it and that's all. There is no soul. There is no spirit. You're just a body. You're a computer made out of meat. <laughs> and that's what you are. And everything that goes on with you is all biology. Whether you like pizza or hate it, it's just biology. If you've fallen in love with your spouse, just chemical reactions between two human beings, that's it and that's all. So a humanist, that kind of person, a humanist, they reject the claim that the Bible is the Word of God. They are convinced 
the book was written solely by humans in an ignorant, superstitious, and cruel age. They believed that, the, that because the, the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, the book contained many errors and harmful teachings. I'm assuming you've been to at least high school. If you've been to some college, you've probably taken some sort of history class, right? And you've probably heard of the Enlightenment period, right? The whole Nietzsche God is dead thing, right? And we've grown up the Enlightenment period. The Enlightenment period and the Enlightenment philosophers tell you that humanity has now evolved to a point to where we can put to bed any religion. That religion was helpful for humanity as it was evolving and it was moving forward. At the infant stage of our human experience, religion was helpful because it kind of kept us in order. It, it kept this idea that there was some sort of ruler somewhere that would tell us what to do, that would punish people for doing wrong things and would give people good things for doing bad things. And you know, every time you had a stomachache, it was some sort of like god or demon doing something for you if there was rain and the corn grew well that was because some like god of rain and corn made it do that and it was all this kind of stuff but ah, we've we've grown up it's fine to believe in the easter bunny and all that kind of stuff but you grow up and so humanity grew up and came of age and we call it the enlightenment period where science and art and philosophy now was used to shape the thoughts and actions of humanity. And human flourishing is the ultimate good that you and I can participate in. And if it helps humanity through reason and science and the arts become to grow better and to flourish and to experience what we want to and what we, what we determine is good for us on the inside, if we can live that way and if we can help each other along the way, we don't need religion, we don't need God, we don't need some ancient book, we don't need superstition, we don't need all any of it. We've grown up. We've grown up. We don't need our parents to tell us any longer that when the street light comes on, you better be home. No, it's stay out all night. You're big enough. You can handle it. You're grown up enough. I don't know about you, but I've received two tickets for not having my seatbelt on. You would have thought that perhaps the fact that it would save my life that would be enough. You would think that after the first time of being pulled over and given a citation for not having a seatbelt, you think maybe then well so we're really not so grown up after all i mean after all most of you don't even floss until two weeks before the dentist and then you kind of start flossing and then you go to the dentist well because we know we know that you and i don't do well self self-regulating but humanity is grown. that's the humanist perspective that's the pervading perspective of the schools and colleges where your young people are going that's the prevailing mindset so there's that. The Bible's harmful. Well, the Bible also can be used as just helpful advice. And I'm sad to say that sometimes myself as a preacher, I kind of slide into that area. And sometimes I write sermons just because I find them to be maybe helpful for you. It's kind of a utilitarian view of Scripture that I use it as a tool. 
I use it for how it works best for me. So that if I need a flat tip screwdriver, I get one of those out. If I need a Phillips head screwdriver, I get one of those out. If I need a hammer, I get one of those out. It's just kind of what I need. So if I need something, if there's something going on in my world, there's something going on at work, in my marriage, raising my kids, raising something, I get my Bible and I do a little topical search of that topic and I find some helpful advice. Amen. And I come to church and I hope that perhaps my pastor is going to be talking about something in my life that's applicable. That's, that's the word you hear, right? Applicable preaching. I just really said that funny. Um, authentic preaching. Relevant preaching. If there's one thing that makes me want to vomit as a pastor, is other pastors saying, we need relevant sermons. What they're really saying we need to use the Bible as a helpful tool because it's got a lot of wonderful advice. And if we give people wonderful advice, they'll come back to church. Well, I want you to have helpful advice. I believe there is helpful advice in here. But why is it helpful? Why is it helpful? And does it go beyond being helpful? Yes, it is helpful. The Bible has helped me. In Ephesians chapter 5, when it says husbands should love your wives as Christ loved the church and give your life to her, that has helped me immensely. When I realize that if I give my life over to my wife and serve her, she will respond in positive ways and life and the home will be amazing. That's been wonderfully helpful advice. Whenever the Bible says, do this like Jesus, that's wonderful advice because he was the best at everything. And so I could find helpful advice there. I could find helpful advice in the Proverbs about my money when it says that the lender becomes, or excuse me, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. Well, that sounds, that sounds to me like it's a pretty good idea to stay out of debt because if I go into debt, that means because I'm the borrower, I become that person's slave. Huh. You know, it dawned on me the first time I bought a car. First time I bought a car, my dad said, you didn't buy that car. That's not your car. And I said, what do you mean? I got the keys. And he goes, the bank owns that. And I was like, no, but it's mine. It's, um, it's, mine's on the registration. Mine's on the, he goes, yeah, try that out. Try not making payments for two months and see whose it is. And oh, by the way, you no longer can do whatever you want with your money. Because this month and for the next 60 months, you will pay that bank this much money or they will come and get their car. Oh, and oh, the first time I bought a home, and I realized that that home, now here's, here's something, the first house I bought in Colorado Springs was $45,000. $45,000. And then I really stepped up big when I came to California and bought one for ninety six. Oh Lord, if I would have stayed in that house. And I realized that if I make payments for 30 years on that house, how much I really will pay for that house. Nowhere near 96,000. Nowhere near. So the Bible has all this helpful advice. Look at this passage of Scripture in Psalm 19, 105. It says this, Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Amen. Hallelujah. Yes, it is. That Scripture is true. Now, if I'm just going to use the Bible for helpful advice, I'll say, hey, it's kind of like holding a lamp out in front of me. It's turning the lights on in the room. Okay, but does that mean I have to? Or is it just a good idea if, if I should choose to? If you're just using the Bible as helpful advice, it's something that you might want to consider. It's something that might be helpful. 
It's something that you would take and compare to some other helpful advice and some other ideologies and some other concepts and then kind of combine it all together and use your own sensibilities to make the choice that seems best to you. But if I look at scriptures like this psalm and I say, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, that means it's the light by which I have to follow. It's God shining a light on my future and saying, this is what you need to do. Or I could go to the Scriptures and it can tell me, no, that, that passage in Ephesians 5, that's not a might. That's not an option. That's not, here's something you might want to consider. No, it's, you, you do this. And in another passage that says that if I don't treat my wife right, God won't hear my prayers. Not option. Not an option to treat my wife as Christ treats the church. That is a must. It's not just helpful advice. You, you see the difference between helpful advice and direct commands authoritative over my life. I've done this little illustration before. Sometimes teenagers would like, ask me if I should really do that or not. And for some of you, that didn't feel so good. and It didn't feel so good to do it. But to treat the Bible like helpful advice is to stand over the Bible. I'm in charge of my own life. I call the shots. I am the authority and the creator of my own destiny. And I'll use the Bible as I see fit. I am over the Bible. However, if I keep the Bible up here, now it's over me. And I am obligated as a follower of Jesus Christ to surrender my will to the authoritative word of God. And when someone asks me my advice, hey, pastor, what do you think I should do? I'm obligated to tell you this. I'll read you a passage of Scripture. Now I'm going to put the Bible over your head. I'm not going to lay the Bible at your feet. I'll just point it up over your head and say, well, <laughs> if you're following Jesus, here it is. So you see the difference. Now, the third option, trusting the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. First of all, we can look to the Bible and ask ourselves, well, what does it say of itself, right? But you know, because you've taken Philosophy 101, at least at a junior college level, and you understand that that's just simply circular reasoning. But we're going to go through it to kind of ask the question, because that's the first thing you've got to do, is you've got to say, hey... What does the Bible say about itself? Does it claim to be the Word of God? Do the authors of the Bible claim to have the Word of God? Or is it something that the original authors never claimed, but then we ascribed to it? If it's something that the original authors never, ever said, we just in later generations ascribed to it, our ascription of the Scriptures as authoritative needs to be removed because it never said it in the first place, never claimed to be. So we go to the Scriptures first, but we can't just go there. Because again... For something to say, if I say, I am, I fill in the blanks, and I have no external evidence from that, it's just me, there's not really a logical argument there, is there? So, let's just go to the scriptures really quick, looking at a few. The worship of God submits, the worshiper of God submits to the authority of God, according to Psalm 119, 160 says this, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And the Psalms was their songbook. 
It was what they, how they worshipped. So as we worship God, according to his word, we are submitting ourselves to the authority and the everlasting nature of his righteous rules. So if these are his righteous rules and they endure forever, true worship will be submitting myself to them. Jesus modeled this type of authority in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. It says, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Why? Because I don't like it? Because I don't agree? Because it's against the latest trend? No, Jesus said you are wrong because you neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Now note, when Jesus was talking to his group of people and he was walking the earth in his first century garb with his first century sandals in the first century road in the first century world what he called the scriptures was this these pages <laughs> Genesis through Malachi two-thirds of what we call the Bible and so he was telling the people ah uh, you're wrong because you don't know this. Now that's a slap in the face of every Jewish male that was around with Jesus. Because though you may not realize this, the Jews of Jesus' day had that entire thing memorized by the time they were 14 years old. Could you imagine? That's what you did. The educated Jewish young man would get up every morning as a child, and instead of being sent off to school to learn all that we learn, they were sent off to school to learn that. And if you were really good at memorizing all of this stuff, by the time you were 12, a rabbi would probably take you under his care, send, give you his teaching called his yoke, and begin to teach you the rest of the scriptures because you were the best of the best, the cream of the crop. You're amazing. You're going to go do what I do. You're going to become your rabbi. And so they would have this thing memorized. And so Jesus to show up to a male-dominated culture and say, you're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures. You don't know what you've been studying your entire life. You don't know what's been ingrained in you since the time you can walk. You don't know what's been ingrained with you, within you and makes you who you are. You, you don't even know. It wasn't like Jesus would show up on a Sunday morning to the retreat church and say, you guys don't know your Bible very well. No, he would be destroying your whole self-worth and whole identity. Jesus would be saying, you don't know who you are. You don't know who God is. You don't know where you live. You don't know where you've been. You are ignorant of everything that makes you you. That's what he'd be saying in this first century world. As we move into the Acts and we start looking at Paul the Apostle and as he began to teach these folks that knew the Scriptures, what we call our Old Testament, they knew this and then he began to talk to them about Jesus and about how Jesus began to fulfill all that was written in the Scriptures. As he began to proclaim that, there were this group in Acts chapter 17 that we call the Bereans. They were from a town called Berea. And they have been listening to Jesus, excuse me, to Paul in Thessalonica, and it says this. Now the Jews who were more noble than those in Thessalonica, okay, they were there, but they were the cream of the crop people, they received the word, in other words, they received what Paul was talking to them about Jesus. They received the word with all eagerness and examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So they would show up and they knew the Scriptures. They were the elite. They were the cream of the crop, top of the bundle kind of people. 
they showed up, they heard Paul saying, hey, this Jesus, he's the fulfillment of all of your scriptures. Eh, I don't know about that. I'm going to go home and see. I'm going to go get with my rabbi and see. I'm going to search the scriptures daily to see if what you're giving me is actually the truth. And whatever they heard about Jesus, they compared to the scriptures because the scriptures are the authoritative word of God. Lastly, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul speaking to a largely Gentile world and a, a mixed but a predominantly Gentile world in Rome. He says this, For whatever was written in the former days, that's your Old Testament, was written for your instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So the first century world first century world, looked at their happenings, looked what was going on with Jesus. The only way they were to identify Jesus as the promised Messiah was to compare what he said and did with what the Scriptures said. And when they came together in those, they then surrendered their lives to Jesus. Why is Jesus so key in this? First of all, Jesus, as we look to this last point, and the challenge becomes for you before we get there. I get a little ahead of myself. The challenge for you in this. Okay, here it is. Trust the word of the eyewitnesses who received God's word from Jesus. Okay? Notice something that takes place in this rather lengthy passage that I want to kind of work through for a few moments before I let you go. John 17 is called the high priestly prayer. Jesus is in beginning, Jesus is towards the end of his, his earthly ministry, and he's gathered his apostles around him. Those 12 who he'd been living with for three years, modeling ministry, doing those kind of things. He gathered them around and he began to pray with them. Notice among all the things he prays about, what does he pray about concerning the word of God? Notice starting in verse 6. Jesus talking to the Father. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. In other words, they've kept the Scriptures as they saw Jesus doing and fulfilling and walking and being and teaching. They held on to the Scriptures. They had one eye on the, on the Old Testament, one eye on Jesus, and they're kind of going, ah, and they're keeping the word as they see Jesus. Verse 7, now, and now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. Wait a minute. So they held on to the Old Testament. They held on to the Scriptures as they watched Jesus work. And they started believing in Jesus and that everything that was going on in Jesus was from God because everything going on with Jesus was consistent with the Scriptures. But now Jesus gives them this other thing. He says, I have given them the words that you gave me. Oh, this is going to be a new kind of thing. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I have come from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. 
So you get the picture so far of what's going on. This is going to unfold and make a little more sense. But going through verse 9 to continue the story, he says, I'm praying for them. I am not praying for the world, those outside, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's praying for these disciples. He said, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So Jesus is glorified in these people. And I am no longer in the world. He's leaving. (laughs) But they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, for they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that was Judas, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And now here it is. Here's when Jesus does something that changes everything. Verse 14. I have given them your word, your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. Verse 20, another key. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And they may all be one, just as you are, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what Jesus does here is he gives them his word. And then he prays, Lord, keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the world. And I pray also for those who will believe in me because of their word. So what is their word? that Jesus gave them. If this was Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all these people, okay, and I just made a mistake there because it wasn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The only ones that were here right now, as you Bible students probably know, is who? John and Matthew. Mark and Luke are not on the scene yet. They'll come in later. But that's key. Because as Jesus prays for these 12, he says there's going to become the future that all future believers are going to believe in Jesus because of these guys' words. So this is what happened. Matthew wrote Matthew, first gospel in the New Testament. And then Peter didn't write a gospel. He wrote some epistles later. Didn't write a gospel. But Peter, you'll notice as you read the book of Acts, Peter gave his information to a young man named Mark, who Mark got off to a rough start, started out on ministry with Paul the Apostle and got a little weird, went home, came back, became useful to Paul. 
Peter gave Mark the information to write Mark. And then you'll notice some strange passages in the book of Luke. They're called the we passages. And those are passages where Peter gave information to Luke. And Luke wrote Luke. And you'll also understand this man by the name of John, who was a young teenager with Jesus and died around the year A.D. 95. Very, very young child, barely probably 13, 14 with Jesus. He wrote John. So Matthew, John, Peter, on the scene with Jesus, he testifies. These have believed in me because of the Scriptures. And now I have given them your word. And there are people that will believe in me because of their word. You have their word. Now I want to finish this morning by answering in brief and just kind of giving you a little bit of a push to go do some reading. I think I would be a bad pastor if I didn't. One of the current books that I'm reading is this one right here that's titled Revisiting the Corruption of the New Testament, edited by Daniel B. Wallace. If you want to know anything about Daniel B. Wallace, you can go and Google his name. You will be taken to a website of a center that he runs, the Center for New Testament Manuscripts. And it'll be way over. <laughs> it's just, whew, make your head swim. To read this book, you've got to understand a little bit of Greek, a tiny bit. And if you don't, you just look that up too. But what this does is this gets real honest about what you and I have in our hands. And it talks about different places where a scribe may have mixed up a word, misspelled a word, misplaced a word, put the wrong ending on a word. Kind of look at all that stuff. It'll look at different things where as a scribe was taking the ancient manuscripts and copying and copying, where in the margins a scribe would write a note. I don't know about this. This seems weird, and there's these little scribbles in some of these ancient manuscripts, and there's these different things. Let me give you one example. One example of where many critics say, I can't believe in the Bible because the manuscripts vary, and there's some trouble there, and uh, I don't fully believe in the Bible because there's just some textual variance is, is the term. I want to take you to one. And then we'll quit. And you can go eat lunch, have some tacos, recover from this sermon. <laughs> if I can find it. I just decided to do this at the last minute. Really, the sermon should be over. Um, <laughs> if you would grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24, 36. This is why I really wish I was in a classroom with you so I could have someone else read it. But yeah... 10 minutes before the service started, I said, I have to do this with them. They'll just have to stop, or you can walk out, I suppose. And nobody, <laughs> you're, you're free, it's America. You don't have to stay. Um, but I think it might be worth your while to do it. <laughs> no, Robert. I love Robert. Um, of all the people, he would be the one to mouth off to me like that because we have that relationship. Um, 
Matthew 24. Now, you know this is like a big end times passage, right? Like this is, Jesus is talking about in the end, this happens, right? So there's this verse, verse 36. It says, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Now, when you read that verse in the ancient manuscripts, there's, there seems to be a time period where a certain phrase was there, then it wasn't for a long period of time, and then it, about the 8th century, it popped up again. <laughs> it's like, well, hold up. First few, yes. First, and then they discovered a whole new set of manuscripts in another different geographic location that were as old as the oldest ones, but it didn't have it in there either. And they're like, what is going on? Do you know what the phrase is? Yes, you probably guessed it. It is the phrase, nor the sun. So some manuscripts read this way, but of the coming day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but the Father only. Some manuscripts read that way. And some manuscripts say, nor the sun. So what is the deal? Now there was this little teaching around, if I'm remembering correctly, around the second, third, and fourth centuries called adoptionism which means basically Jesus wasn't God. He was this man that God adopted as his son. And some scribes when, that didn't believe in that, they started taking that phrase out because they felt like that phrase led the people to believe adoptionism. And so it got all screwed around. So there's all this argument over Matthew. Is that phrase supposed to be in there or not? Does it affect the deity of, deity of Jesus or not? There's all these arguing in book after book and years after years. Because the manuscripts vary. But if you would grab your Bible and turn to Mark 13, 32, or I'll just, I'll just tell you so we can go home. Mark 13, 32 has the phrase, nor the son. Same story, same account has the phrase. All the manuscripts that they've ever read of Mark have the phrase. So some people reject the Bible because in Matthew there's some textual variants. And admittedly, there's textual variance. And they're trying to figure out why this is. People with big old brains that spend their whole lives looking at one verse. So folks, if you're going to give up on the Bible because of that one phrase and that one verse, just flip on over to Mark because everybody throughout history and all the manuscripts point to the phrase, nor the Son. So when you and I say that Jesus claimed that the, only the Father knows when He's going to return, that not even He knows, he said it. It's in Mark. It's in most of Matthew. And there's some textual variance throughout history with Matthew. And let me tell you, 99.8%, 99.8% of what you have in your hand today matches exactly with the, all the ancient manuscripts. And of that 0.8% of variance, of textual variances, scribal gloss, scribal mistakes, notes, misspellings, r- words flipped around backwards, there's only a handful. Now, there are about a couple hundred thousand of those, okay? But of all those mistakes or textual variants, zero, besides the one I just read you, zero deal with Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. 